The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. And this week we have the entire editing team of Drunk History. So you probably saw the internet sensation back when it came out originally. Oh, eight years ago, five years ago. And then it also, you've probably seen the show, Drunk History. Well, its third season premiered yesterday. And as part of that, we decided to interview the team of Drunk History. So there's four editors on this team, and they are Jody McVeigh Schultz, James Atkinson, Charles Briner, and Aaron Morris. Now, James Atkinson actually joins us halfway through the interview, actually towards the end of the interview. He enters and we say, you know, we welcome him and he joins our conversation. And what's kind of odd is that I ask about the rushes at that point. And we were talking about structuring the show earlier in the episode. And I was going to move it to match so that it would flow nicely for the audience. But I realized that James actually answers part of the question. And it would kind of be odd if he appeared at the beginning, then reappeared at the end and enters. It was kind of an odd cut. So what I did was I left it there and I left the intro and I left him entering the uh, room and everything so you could hear how that sort of interaction works. The other thing, what I've done is because we're interviewing so many people is I had them say their last names at the beginning, partially so that I would actually pronounce their last names properly. Uh, not that they have hard last names, but I've mispronounced people's names before in the past, but also so that you could actually hear their voices and get an understanding of who's who. So the first one is Jody McVeigh Schultz, and here's him saying his name. Uh, McVeigh Schultz. <laughs> Next is Charles Briner. Briner. And finally, Aaron Morris. Morris. So now you have a sense of what their voices are. The other people involved that I wanted to bring up, and they're not in the interview, but they're an important part of the editing team, and the editors of Drunk History emailed me afterwards to make sure that the audience was aware of how important these people were to them, and that's their assistant editors. So I thought, you know, they took the time to email me just about their assistants, so I thought I'd give a shout out to their assistants as well, because without them, these guys would be drowning in footage. Because in the email, they said they also wanted to give a shout out to the assistant editors who helped them wrangle the footage that is 120 to 1 shooting ratio. I'll let that sink in for a second. The lead AE is Marielle Rubin, and she's been there since season two. And then they just brought on Tom Latvies and James Lysk. And I apologize if I mispronounce those names. You guys weren't there, so you couldn't say your last names for me to, to pronounce them properly. So I apologize for that. Tom and James just joined for season three. Without their help, these guys would be drowning in 120 to 1 shooting ratios. The other thing you should know, with the new season of Drunk History, you can get it at cc.com. That's Comedy Central's website. So cc.com. And go to full episodes, Drunk History. The other thing is, Jody's just released a feature film that's currently doing the festival circuit. And you can learn more about it at echolakefilm.com. 
and I actually sat down with Jody a couple days afterwards to discuss the editing, directing, and writing of this film, because he did all three. So we'll be posting that later this month when it starts screening at the next set of festivals. So with that said, if you're wanting to discuss this, you can always go to aotg.com slash drunk history, and we'll have our discussion page link in there. And of course, you can always get us on our social media if you have any questions at AOTG Network and on Facebook, facebook.com slash AOTG Network. But in the meantime, enjoy my interview with the team from Drunk History. Can you guys walk me through the process of, of creating this this show from a post perspective? Are you guys recording the interviews and sort of giving playback or how does this all work? The way they do it is they do three narrators, as we call them, per episode, per half-hour episode. So that means each act is a drunk narrator, about seven minutes of them, which we take from, you know, about like a three-hour filming session of them getting drunk. And uh, we cut that. We do essentially a radio edit. Um, we get it down to around like seven to eight minutes. And we do multiple notepads on that. And then from there, they develop a script and they go and shoot that and they do playback on set. So it's kind of done like a music video meets short film, I guess. Um, and they do one day of shooting per story, per act, one day of shooting of the reenactment, uh, which makes it easier for them to get bigger names to come do the lip syncing. And then we take that footage, kind of lay it on top of our radio cut, and then we work that again. And, and what's crazy about it is because you still have those three hours to work from, you know, you get this finished, you know, script that's shot, but you, there's still an infinite number of possibilities, punch-up jokes and stuff, because you have all that extra footage. So, yeah, it's really a hybrid. It's fairly unique, I think, in terms of uh, a post situation. And what's it like trying to get the sync to work? Because a lot of it, you know, like when we were at EditFest, we were chatting about... You know, there's one, I think, episode where someone hiccups a lot through the process and the actor's got to match that. So how do you, uh, do you have to help the actors? How does that work in the post-process? So one of the things that we do when they're shooting the reenactments, we give them all the, so they have the whole whole scene with music and everything like that. So the actors are, like he said, like they're syncing on set to the actual thing. And then when, once we get it in, no one's exactly quite perfect, so we'll nudge uh, we can nudge things a little bit as needed just to really lock in that sink in case someone started a hair late or a hair early or something like that. But for the most part, on set, you know, during the, the live playback, you know, obviously on set we don't have to record audio. We have that advantage over a lot of other shows. So they're yeah. just playing the scene on a loop, and they're just kind of looping to it, just like you would with ADR, I guess. Yeah. And honestly, a lot of them are really, really damn good at, at doing the sync. I mean, I think you guys told me about a story about Fred Willard. Oh, yeah. in, And he had like a long, long, like one-take monologue, and he just nailed it because he's a beast. I mean, <laughs> one of the things is because they're moving so fast, and it's like, nine pages per day sometimes. A lot of them are oneers, So it does take a lot of just, you know, doing it over and over. So they'll do, you know, maybe like seven takes of something, but it's a one-shot scene. But yeah, they, they generally get people really good. And every once in a while you have somebody who like, like I won't name names, but somebody didn't realize that there was going to be sync that had to be done. They thought they were reading lines. And so, you know, that ended up being... <laughs> <laughs> Something where you had to kind of work their their stuff. Well, it's funny because I, I 
you know, I was rewatching a bunch of stuff for this interview and like just Dave Grohl is amazing at his sync. Dave Grohl was another person and we, you know, we all kind of chalked it up to him being a drummer is that he has to know exactly when he's going to come in and come out. So him being so good was looking back on it, it seems so natural that he would have been so adept for this and he was you know so much fun to work with and he was so cool with everyone on set and you know i think for him it was a little bit of a different different environment for him and the well, the actors also have a little a little practice time too before they start shooting you know so they'll they'll have a chance to listen to playback a little before shooting as well and so you you get this three hour sort of mound of uh, audio or I guess footage that you have to cut and do the radio cut. So what happens if the story's not working or the story's not there? Do you, like how do you do you do reshoots or how does that work? No reshoots. They're it's... really careful about researching stuff beforehand, and so there is a team of producers that helps the people hone in what they're going. I mean, essentially, they give them research material, but we're very, I think, conscientious in the like pre-production thing stuff about making sure that they know kind of what the story is. And some people kind of, you know, they tell the like very long version and we only want half of what they have. But for the most part, and I think especially in, in as the shows become a well-oiled machine, they tell us the story where they're going to tell, I think even before they get drunk. Yeah. So season one, I always tell everyone like season one was like the wild west. Like, we were still really honing what the process is because Dirk and Jeremy had done this for years, but they hadn't done it as many people in as condensed amount of time as we had uh, for season one. We were essentially doing in five months four times what they had done in five years. So there was a little bit more of that kind of finessing of the process. And, you know, we had a couple, like one of the things that happened was we had a couple people showed up and told stories that were very different than what we expected them to be. They were still good stories, so we had to kind of like pivot and kind of like, okay, well this story isn't going to be quite as much about this that we thought of, but it's going to be about this, which is, you know, which is way funnier and it's going to be better, but it's, so I think that between seasons one and two, they went back and looked at that, and the other thing that we started adding between seasons one and two, uh, one of our researchers always, researchers is always on set, and he's kind of like crossing off the things that need to be hit so that we have those things when yeah. we come back to the editing bay. But we spent probably three weeks per story, would you say, yeah. probably? That, that. Three weeks of story, and you're doing a lot of different stories at the same time, but each story probably gets about three weeks of attention before it even gets reenacted. So Yeah, so it's a lot of cuts and finessing, and we take a, you know, our first radio edits are usually in the 15, 20 minute range probably. And then it's just slicing those down and getting them down to, you know, in a perfect world, six-ish minutes, but usually right. more around eight or nine, seven, eight, nine, something like that. When you came on for the first episode, how did that work in terms of figuring out the structure? Because you had that template, but what did you have to change or how did things change uh, in the, the story structuring? That was one of the things that was we really had to figure out. And Aaron obviously was on for the pilot. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what the pilot was. Yeah, I mean, we we honestly, we tried a lot of different things um, when we were working on the pilot. And we ended up kind of finding that a lot of the language that you see in the web series is what works really well. A lot of, I guess, what we developed was how to expand it into a 30-minute 
show as opposed to a five-minute webisode. Um, but the stories individually themselves, it's a, it's a very similar language to the webisodes. And we, and so then when we transitioned into, you know, into the TV series, I remember when I came on, there was still a little bit of question about, like, we knew what the drunken reenactments were going to be. We knew what those segments kind of looked like. But what we had to kind of figure out is what was the kind of overall packaging of the whole show. You know, especially early on, we were very focused on the, like, the cities. You know, every episode was specifically around a city, whether it was Boston or D.C. or Chicago. And, you know, okay, do we want to make this like a, like a travel show? Do we want to make it more like a, like a history show? So it was trying to find that balance of, like, how do we incorporate these cities and that idea and kind of find the linear narrative between all three stories in an episode so that you can tr- kind of track where we're at and where we're going. And I guess that's sort of how those opening vignettes of the city appear, right? Because you, you guys had those moments where people who weren't in this, you know, interview telling parts about the, the city. We call that a love letter. Is that what it is? The idea is that, and even if it's not around a city, let's say it's a theme, like I'm cutting a, something about inventors right now. It's a themed episode that's going to air later on the season. And what happens is we get all this bar footage where the host, Derek, goes and interviews people um, at bars. The idea is to simultaneously have this kind of like heartfelt, sincere ode to the city or the theme. But then at the same time, like have those people be ridiculously drunk and funny, bumbling. So, you know, it's this kind of mix. Usually you start off kind of sincere and then at least by the end you've got like a solid button joke. But yeah, the interstitials, like it's certainly been, I mean, I came in in season two and even through that season we were still kind of polishing the tone of what we wanted those to be. They started doing more, we call like excursions where he'd go somewhere that was related. I know he went to a, a Foley stage for Hollywood, the Chuck Cut. Yep. And, you know, it, it, it's worked because we kind of figured out, oh, he can kind of play the straight man to somebody who's kind of wacky or drunk if he's in a bar, or he can be made to do something that's, like, completely ridiculous. And no, Derek actually drinks with the people he's interviewing. <laughs> he does. How does that affect you in the cutting process? Like, how does that change or affect his ability to guide the guest in the interview very often the narrators talk about how that puts them at ease and i think in one of their own words to not be made a fool where there's a camera crew and people standing around and that they're just on the spot doing this solo and i think it makes them really comfortable that derek's in it with them because yeah it's it's no fun to be the only drunk person and so like the show is very much hinges on the fact that people feel comfortable just like going to that weird drunken place that after seven drinks you get to. Well, that's an interesting point because it is about sort of, I guess, putting them at ease and not, you're not making fun of them. The fun comes out of the, the reenactment. Right. So how do you, have you had to edit things or work with the footage to make sure that they're not sort of made the fool or made fun of in it? Well, I think that's one of the things that uh, Derek and Jeremy are so good about that I, I think that the instinct if you're working on a show called Drunk History is to like, oh, we want to see a lot of like, you know, people puking and passing out and stuff like that. But one of the things that, that struck me, especially early on in season one, was that they wanted to run, kind of run away from 
the fratty kind of like what if you tell the people that you work what the concept of the show is they almost want to run away from that kind of fratty type of humor mm -hmm. they want it to be a more kind of intelligent breed of comedy and not that we don't want plenty of you know vomit and burps and that kind of stuff but like that's one of the things that i think that they have that they want to find that balance between like oh we want to actually we actually want the audience to learn something while they're laughing that makes sense like we're not consulting the drunk narrators on the edit but that we follow the spirit of like we're not trying to embarrass them right and so it's possible that something that's like just embarrassing that they wouldn't want to show might end up on the cutting room floor but that we're going for like this is it's funny because they're inebriated and they can't help screwing up some stuff and like the alcohol shows through but for the most part we're not trying to just like flat out embarrass anybody they should feel good watching it do you find that the history lesson influences the way you guys cut in any way because we have to tell our story so quickly i'm just trying to figure out what the story is and try and find a place that i can kind of come at it from a creative angle whether it's, oh, this is a buddy comedy, or this is a Western, or this is a kind of a noir feel. I'm kind of trying to find out what genre, and on that initial cut, what I can grab onto, because that'll help me inform me of, like, this is how we want to build these moments or these beats. The showrunners trade off directing the reenactments, and often they will have a reference point. So if it's like a mob movie, you could be like, all right, it's a mob movie set in the 70s, the feel is good, fellas. And so we'll have kind of like a stylistic thing. I had one last year that was about John Adams and Thomas Jefferson having this running feud. And so he was like, oh, Adams. I think it's called Adams. Or John Adams. John yeah. Adams, yeah, the series. It's got that style. And so there were some camera moves that were similar, like Dutch angles that he was using. And you would get the sense of like, oh, I can use this kind of pacing. I can use these kind of transitions. And we do try to have a style that works with the period and works with the kind of style that the director is going for. That definitely, so that, that all informs like how you do stuff. And one of the most like obvious ones is last year we did a story on Orson Welles and William Randolph Hearst, specifically Citizen Kane. So when I was cutting that one, I was like, oh, like what are the narrative elements that they use in that movie that I can kind of put into here? You know, whether it's the nonlinear storytelling or whatever. And the nonlinear thing didn't quite come across. But, like, one of the things that we ended, we did end up doing was, um, like, the newsreel of course, is so famous at the beginning of Citizen Kane. We kind of did that same thing to introduce uh, William Randolph Hearst. Obviously, when we shot it, it was all those, like, big extreme angles. And we did some, me and Jeremy were talking a lot about, and with, of course, the DP, Blake, who's amazing. He did some, like, practical lighting effects that we could use to, you know, do specific transitions and dissolves and mats and stuff like that. So, I mean, I think it just depends on what the story is. For me, if I can figure out what the genre is or what type of story I'm telling, that always helps me. Now, you, you mentioned that at least in the first season, you did multiple takes, essentially. Like, they would tell the story, then keep drinking, tell it again. Yeah. How did you cut that stuff together like, to make sure that it didn't come across like they were sobering up or drinking really fast? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things is we try to just essentially stay true to their actual experience. So a lot of times you'll get the sense of a progression of drunkenness and that is just making sure that we are not cutting in stuff that's kind of like false or like trying to cheat stuff in so 
Like, they tell the story multiple times, but we try to use, like, the first part of it in the beginning. And so when you get the finished product, you have this feeling of, like, the entirety of the night where they started out just kind of buzzed and then, you know, by the end they're yeah, like super hammered. My kind of initial thing was to use things from the early parts of the story from the early part of his interview and and then as we progress, the later part of the story mostly came from the back part so that you kind of have this progression and that they're not just suddenly going from like, you know, hey, so this is what the thing is to like completely like out of their mind, you know, can't speak. We like and then and then they're back to like whatever again. Like we want that to be kind of like a, a real progression that, that the audience can feel. Has there ever been a case or a situation where you guys they had to just stop shooting or they had to scrap a story because someone got too drunk too fast? I think there's been a couple like let's take lunch right now and pick it up in half an hour. Yeah. I don't think there's been too many so they used to do in season one they did somewhere they were like all right you're going to tell two stories tonight yeah and that was i wasn't there but chuck has told me that that was kind of a nightmare because as you can imagine the second story would be a little arduous (laughs) so i think we scrapped some of those but for the most part look like you know it's a fun show about getting drunk but we don't want anybody to like have to go to the hospital so no of course they're very careful about not yeah drinking too much although people do absolutely that's for sure and and we we have a a nurse on hand to make sure that no one you know we don't want anyone to get hurt or do anything wrong and they have to they have to go through a process before they can even come on the show where they're checked out and all that stuff but yeah we have had things where we haven't had anything where we like totally scrapped the like the story but like we have had parts where, like one guy we showed up to, and he was, it was kind of in some ways the reverse of what we usually get, is that we showed up and like the first two hours he couldn't get through anything, and then the last two he was kind of, he was able to, to then kind of like get back through the story again, and we found that balance, but everyone's different, and that's like, I don't know, that's one thing I've taken away from the show, is like, don't, know. Yeah, everybody handles alcohol very differently, I mean... It's, you know, it's obviously going to be different if you have a 120-pound tiny woman versus, like, a 250-pound giant man. But, yeah, I think, you know, one thing that they kind of have figured out is, oh, it takes a while to set up the lights, so have your first drink the minute we come in the door, and then you'll kind of be, like, at a place where you're you're starting to get drunk, but you're not dying. And then by the end of the night, if you want to be unintelligible, that's up to you, <laughs> essentially. But yeah, it's you know, it's it's tough. It's a little strange that it's like a requirement to essentially like. <laughs> you know. um, James is walking in. By the way, he's another editor. Hi there. Hi, James. James is the distinction of not only having been being one of our editors this season, but he was a narrator season one. Oh, so, a really fun experience. Which episode were you the narrator in? The season one Atlanta episode, and I talked about Martin Luther King. Wait, can you give us some insight into that side of it, or telling us, you know, sure, absolutely, what it's like? It's, it's pretty weird having like experience on either side. I'd say the I'd say the weirdest thing about it, it definitely feels like you're cramming for finals, <laughs> and you've got a bunch of anxiety. Like I had a bunch of anxiety because I was very worried about looking like an asshole on television. <laughs> And I was very, I was worried about getting something factually wrong and making the King family like upset or angry. <laughs> <laughs> then you have this weird anxiety relieving 
solution of like, oh, well, the crew's going to be here in 20 minutes. I guess I can start getting hammered because that's my job and I'm a professional. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a very, it's like, I've never had that sensation like any other day of my life of, I've been studying extremely hard, but luckily I have this escape valve of getting really hammered before the stressful thing happens. And hopefully I won't even remember that it happened. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess, like, uh, it reminds me, like, a friend of mine, Nick Monsoor, actually edited the interview. And it was really nice knowing that, like, a really smart person who I trust took the footage and made me look like like a decent human being. <laughs> and, like, because basically, as an interview subject, you're giving the editor, like, the best black male material anybody will ever have on you. <laughs> Yeah, so the narrators the deserve like a lot of credit for trusting and being open. Yeah. Has that changed your approach to the, the editing process, being a subject who's also the narrator? Definitely makes me more conscious of every single person who like volunteers to be a narrator is just giving you a lot of trust and you want to be like very careful with how you present them. Yeah. I mean you want it to be a funny show, but that definitely is in the back of my head. Like the person who is on camera doesn't even remember doing this. Yeah, we had talked about the sort of the process. What's what's the rushes like that you get in? What do what do those look like? In a lot of ways, it's like a documentary when you get the footage from the first half, and you're yeah. For kind the of, interview, you just basically yeah. get like four or five hours or however many hours the yeah. interview is, and they try to shoot it sort of verite. Just leave cameras rolling as soon as they're in the apartment. Yeah. Or wherever they're shooting the narrator because they want to capture moments where the narrator's acting naturally. Yeah, like we had a narrator just like, he was like, I'm going to get my swords and like ran off his room. We followed with cameras and he was like, clang, like, let's play with these swords. I want to crash them together. And it was just like, oh, Jesus. But, you know, we're just kind of always filming. And then the reenactments come in very much just like a standard. Yeah, you know, they're, all, they're all slated and they have takes and you have script notes and there's a script and that's months later after you've locked your interview cut. And how much time do you guys get for each cut, for each section? So much time. It's, <laughs> I mean, look, kudos to Comedy Central for being like, look, there are not writers on this show. So like we have to give editors a little bit more time yeah. to structure stuff. Yeah. yeah, to build it and make sure that it's tight and funny and that there are jokes in the right places. So, I mean, we are given like quite a bit of time in each of the phases. Once we get our editor's cut of an entire episode out, um, it kind of goes into like hyperspeed, which is why we're all yeah, super we have, busy like, right we now. We have like a couple weeks once you start, once you have like yeah. a whole episode put together. Yeah, so it, it's like editor's cut. And that's after we've had that's once you individual... Have, that's once you have all your elements. But it can take... Because all these elements are coming in piecemeal, like interviews are coming in, and then maybe months later they cast somebody and they shoot a reenactment, you can spend a lot of time, like even months on one episode. But once you have everything in, then it's a very accelerated schedule to turn it into an episode of TV. Yeah. I wish we had like a more specific... Yeah, essentially what they do is they do the, um, the drunk narrators, and then as we're finishing up the last of those... They're on the road interviewing people in the various cities. And then we start to get that in. And by the time we're editing those little mini pods, they're off starting to shoot the first reenactments. And then we start, we get, essentially, as we get dailies back, we're starting to cut those. And then, yeah, eventually, once they're all back from shooting everything, we start the process of actually 
building full episodes. I think we get essentially like a couple of days before we do a director's cut, and then there are a couple of days for each producer's cut, and then it goes to the network, and the network gets three cuts. And there's a lot of reworking stuff, but just making sure that jokes work mostly. Um, and then obviously, you know, there's a lot of elements going on. There's a drunk person, it's funny, it's also historical, and there's also lip sync reenactment. So the stories have to be kind of like really clear because there's so much going on for the viewer. Like we often streamline stuff pretty well into the editing process where like one of our showrunners will look at it and be like, huh, if I'm thinking about watching this for the first time, like this beginning is super fucking confusing. And so then we try to streamline and you know, there's a lot of ways to do that. So you should probably go see something. This man's got a QC. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this interview. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Um, Well, I guess that brings up, I guess, one last question. or Actually, I have two last questions, and that's what happens if essentially the the drunk people are going to be rambling sometimes. So how do you work with that to tighten that up and and clean it up so you still have a bit of rambling but still fun? It's a little bit of trial and error in terms of just finding the difference between slowing down the momentum of the story and killing that momentum and finding the thing that is, oh, that's funny, and it can almost somersault us into with the next piece of the story. At least that's what I've found. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of the time, the decision on what to use and what not to use is based on when they give dialogue. So what happens when you're drunk is you get more and more in the line of, he'll be like, well, then Lincoln was like, listen, dude, I'm totally fucking done with this. And so then that becomes, we're like, oh, sweet. That's a moment of possible dialogue. And so oftentimes, if you have a long rambling piece about that doesn't involve any dialogue, that's just them essentially narrating third person, that will end up going away unless it's hilarious because we're looking to build scenes around this lip sync dialogue. Now, uh, the last question I was going to ask, and I asked this of all the editors I interview, and that's, uh, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Ooh, Aaron, what you got? <laughs> guilty pleasure. Guilty pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else has. Yeah, Chuck, you got anything? <laughs> trying to think. Uh, I know I have something, but... I've got, I've got tons, I'm sure. Like, my sick day film is The Princess Bride. Like, yeah. Sick at Home, that's the movie I'm probably popping in to just, like... That's my comfort food. So that's, yeah, I don't know. That's my answer, I guess. <laughs> I feel like I might go Mean Girls. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, that's a good one. That's actually a really smart movie. Yeah. It does get the respect. Yeah, I'm not embarrassed to say it. I like it, but it does feel like kind of a guilty pleasure. Huh. See, it's funny. I don't go back to movies very often, but I will say I'm a big crier when it comes to movies. <laughs> Just big time crier. So I haven't seen it twice, but on an airplane, I sobbed while watching I Am Sam. Oh, just hits you right in the heart. Um, I was going to say, have you ever been to the website cryingwife.com? No, but I'm about to go to that website. So this guy, his wife cries at every movie, no matter what movie it is. And so he started documenting it, and they'll just watch anything from like Jurassic Park to, you know. Like rub the cop or something. Yeah, and yeah. she just cries at the end. She's like, "It's so sad that the cops now, you know, like, 
together with his family and she just can't take it. It's <laughs> amazing. Well, thanks for allowing me to interview you guys and, and make sure to tell James I said thanks. Cool. Thank you. Absolutely. So that was my interview with the team. Now, remember, if you want to talk about this or discuss this interview, you can go to aotg.com slash drunk history, and in there you'll see the discussion link for drunk history. Again, if you want to watch the episodes, go to cc.com, and then under full episodes, choose drunk history. And of course, you can always check out Jody's new film, Echo Lake, at echolakefilm.com. I'd like to remind you to check out our social media at AOTG Network on Twitter, facebook.com slash AOTG Network, and of course, YouTube, youtube.com slash AOTG.com, and dot spelled out. So with that said, I'd like to thank Jody, James, Charles, and Aaron for joining me on this episode of AOTG.com's The Cutting Room. Of course, you can always see all of our episodes for AOTG.com's The Cutting Room at AOTG.com slash Cutting Room. I'd like to thank, I'd like to thank Jody, James, Charles, and Aaron for joining me on this episode. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.